audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. Kind of a fan of sweet and salty. I am. You know, the, I don't know if you can really call them a granola bar, but, um, and I don't know who actually makes them because we buy the Walmart brand, okay? Uh, but, but, but you have, it looks kind of like a granola bar on the top, got some almonds in it, you know? And then on the bottom of it, it's got kind of that frost. You can't call it frosting because it's on the bottom. You can't call something frosting that's on the bottom. So if you want to call it frosting, turn it upside down and eat it. There you go. So, but, but it's the sweet and salty. And I kind of like a little bit of salty with the Now, not too much sweet, Mike. And I don't like the sweet in baked beans. Baked beans are supposed to be salty with no sweet. I don't care what anybody says. That is a 4th of July travesty when people have sweet baked beans. (laughs) But getting away from baked beans, and I do like, I do like the sweet and the salty. But here's the question. Here's the question. Do you think we've taken it too far? Have we taken the sweet and the salty too far? Did you know they have, you know peanut brittle? It's kind of the wrong time of year for it. If you've still got some peanut brittle back in your cabinet like we do at our house, by this time it has formed into one mass of something, all right? Um, and don't eat it. Don't feed it to the dogs. Don't even give it to the chickens and they'll eat anything. Just go throw it in the dumpster, all right? But, so it's not the right time of year for peanut brittle, but you know what they have? They have bacon brittle. Bacon brittle. And some of you are like, I think I could handle that. All right, what about this one, black licorice squares? Now, I'm not talking about the black licorice, like you cut into a, a square, maybe buying it at the store. No, they look like brownies, all right? You bake them, and they're black licorice squares, all right? How about this one, sweet and salty spaghetti? Does that sound good? Does that sound good to anyone? Sweet and salty spaghetti. How about this one? Now, this is not something for infants, This is an actual recipe I found on Google, and it's called homemade baby food puree. Sign me up. I mean, the peas and the carrots, oh yeah, oh yeah. How about this one? Guys, before I say it, I just got to tell you, it is downright unpatriotic, all right? It's this one, sweet potato and black bean burgers. If I come to your house and you have your grill going, and on that grill, you have sweet potato and black bean burgers. I say to you, that's un-American. And you do that to me, I will throw your grill in the pond. I will do it. Do not expect me to eat that trash. It's not going to happen. I mean, have we taken it too far? What about sweet and salty personalities? You ever met somebody who's got a sweet and salty personality? Are you married to somebody who has a sweet and salty personality? How can you, can, can sweet and salty coexist in the same person? Can, is that a possibility? Can that happen? When we turn to John chapter 2, you're going to find something and you need to know a little bit about what's going on. John chapter 1 is about Jesus gathering his first disciples. There's one thing about John, two things actually, that you need to know. First of all, John wrote his account of Jesus in a very basic 
way. Now, not that he was writing it to dumb people or anything along those lines. He wrote it in Koine Greek, which was the common language of the common people in the Empire of Rome. But not only that, he wrote it very simply, in a way that was very easy to understand. You go and start taking biblical Greek on any, on any Bible college campus, I will tell you it will not be long when you start looking into the Bible that you will start in the Gospel of John. Right, that's where you're going to be. So that's one thing about John, written to, in a very understandable way to common people. And don't misunderstand that. When it comes to the gospel, common people's where we really like to be. Okay? Now the other thing about John is of all the miracles that Jesus performed, many of them, John concludes his writing in his gospel in this way. I suppose if we were to write down everything Jesus did or said, not all the books in the world would contain it. So he, had, he couldn't write it all. So he selected seven miracles, only seven, and he included them in his account, the gospel of John. And the very first one that he records we find in John chapter 2. Jesus his ministry is just getting started. He's been on the earth for going on about three decades. But he's been way back in behind the scenes. And then you get to the 30th year of his life and his ministry begins. John chapter 1 takes place very much kind of in the backwoods, the other side of the tracks, if you will, in the area of Galilee. And what takes place next also takes place there. Jesus' ministry has just begun, but it has not taken very long for him to begin turning people's heads, saying, who, who exactly is this guy from Nazareth? First of all, we're going to look at the sweet side. The sweet side of Jesus. As I've told you, John only includes seven of Jesus' miracles in his gospel. You would think that if he only included seven, that they were each one picked specifically for a purpose. The, the circumstances surrounding John's first recorded miracle in the first 10 verses of John chapter 2 leave a lot of unanswered questions. It's a wedding. Jesus is at a wedding celebration. Whose wedding? We don't know. We know it was in Cana. That's where we know. Now here's an interesting thing. His mother was very well acquainted with the people having this wedding, at least one side of the, the groom or the bride. I mean, she, she might have been the wedding coordinator, if you will, all right? As we will see. So she's involved in this somehow. Um, Nathaniel, who has just kind of come on board to the Jesus crew, it's not full yet. It's still, he's still gathering members on the Jesus crew. But Nathaniel has joined it, one of the apostles. And we find out later in the Gospel of John, he's from Cana. So maybe, maybe through Nathaniel, Jesus and the rest of them got invited there. We really don't know why they were there and how they got there. A lot of questions. Here's my question, though. If John only chooses seven miracles to include in his gospel, why this one? Why this one? So let's look at it. John chapter 2, first five verses. We'll dig into it a little deeper. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, this is interesting, woman, what does that have to do with us? 
My hour has not yet come. And then check out verse 5. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, here's something we got to understand. Weddings in that day, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we've talked about it before. But weddings in that day, quite a bit different than what we experience as weddings in our culture. I'm not going to ask by the raising of hands, but I have a feeling that most of us men are not big fans of going to weddings. I, 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 just, don't, I just don't know. Too many are. Like, like, like the wife says, oh, we've got a wedding here in a month and a half. You need to schedule for it. And it's like, yahoo, yeah, wonderful. Can't wait to go. Some fun stuff. All right. Um, that's not me. Maybe it's you, guys. Maybe that's you. You, you love going to weddings. So, the weddings then, though, was not going to, like, like, a, like you go to a wedding in our culture, if somebody has a meal afterwards and like a reception and stuff, that's kind of a big deal. Like Donna and I, we had cake, some peanuts, and some mints, and some punch. It's like, okay, you had your cake, you had your peanuts, you had your mints, now you can leave. We're ready to go too. All right, so. That, I mean, that, that was kind of the extent of it. Maybe some of you have been to some more extravagant weddings where more is that you had a venue or something like that, all right? Whatever you've been to and whatever you think that was a pretty big deal pales in comparison to the weddings of that day. For one thing, a wedding could last as many as seven days. The wedding feast, the wedding celebration could last as long as seven days. Dad, you're scared of paying for a wedding for your daughter one day? Think about paying for one that lasts seven days all right so so this is what's going on mary as we've already said must have known this family quite well and there is a problem they're still near the beginning of this wedding and the wine is gone it's it's gone it's like it's not running out it is gone and then what we need to understand about this situation for whosoever responsible for providing it, whichever side of the wedding party is, this is not only terribly embarrassing, there are some Bible scholars studying culturally in times of antiquity that a family could be sued for running out of wine before the party's over. (laughs) Goodness gracious. So this is a big deal. So then we have Mary Coming to Jesus, we get a very much abbreviated conversation, I'm assuming, of what all took place. She comes to him and says, they have no more wine. And he says, woman. Now, when we see those words, we're like, he's like, stay away from me, woman. You know, no, this is actually a very polite term. It would be like saying ma'am. He doesn't say mom. He says ma'am. And he says, what does this have to do with me? It's interesting. Jesus' ministry has started now. And what we see right here is this. There's become, and it's probably been taking place for a little while now, but now the ministry has begun. There's kind of a role reversal here. When you read about Jesus and John, or not John, when he was 12 years old in the Gospel of Luke, you read something. When he was 12 years old, he submitted himself and continued to submit himself under the authority of mom and dad. Now by this time, it seems like Joseph isn't there anymore. He probably was dead. But right here we see something different. Mary coming to terms with the fact that her son is the Messiah. And he's not just the Lord. He's her Lord. Okay, So he says, ma'am, 
He said, what does this have to do with me? This is not my business. Now, we don't know the rest of this conversation. If Jesus winked at her or something, or just the way he said it, or there's a little bit more of this conversation we don't get, but she turns to the servants, I love this, and says, whatever he says to do, do it. All right? And, and it's just like, I, I just love that part. So let's see what happens next. Jump into verse 6. Now there were six stone water, part, water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. So we're talking about a water pot here that's going to have some height to it. It's going to have some depth to it. We're not talking about a five-gallon bucket. I mean, we're talking about holding something here. Now understand something. If this was a pot used for water for purification to make somebody ceremonially clean, there has never been a drop of wine in it ever. Right, so don't, don't come into this misunderstanding if somebody tries to rip the power of God from the Gospels. This was a miracle. It wasn't like, well, there's a little bit of wine in there and you just threw some water in. No, absolutely not. This was a miracle. So let's continue and see what happens. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. Now think about the head waiter. This is the true wedding coordinator, okay? This isn't the guy doing all the minor details behind the scenes. This is somebody who is a very good delegator. And he is the public face of the celebration. He's the one. So he would be kind of a cross between a wedding coordinator and a DJ, if you will, all right? He's the one who's doing everything. He's getting everything going. It's time for this toast. It's time for this food. All of these things. He is the face of this party, all right? So they bring this wine to him. He has no idea what's going on behind the scenes. That's not his job. His job is simply to be the public face. So he doesn't know about this miracle that has taken place. And look at verse 9. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water, they knew... The head waiter called to the bridegroom. Now, we don't know how much privy the bridegroom is to all of this, all right? I'm assuming he probably knows that there's a problem in the kitchen, okay? And he's probably getting a little nervous about it. So when he gets called up by this head waiter, it's like, oh boy, here we go. We're out of wine. This is going to be embarrassing. I'm going to get sued. I'm going to jail. The head waiter calls up the bridegroom, verse 10. He said to them, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now there's a lot of ramifications to that. What Jesus, this gift that he gave them, we're talking about a deluge of wine here, okay? This wasn't just for the rest of the wedding feast. This is like an incredible wedding gift on top of it. I mean, that stuff was valuable. This is a big, big deal. We can't really understand it because weddings to us are something completely different. Has anybody here ever been to a wedding where you were there for a week? I mean, really? That's just not what we think of. And, and the festivity there, the joy that is there. It's interesting to me. Um, you know that I'm a fan of, of so far what they, have, what they have produced. I haven't seen any of the second season yet because we're waiting for it to go on DVD because I don't want to watch it on my phone. But The, the, the Chosen, 
I'm a fan of it. Jesus gathering his apostles around him. And in the first season, they do this. They have this, they have this wedding. Now, they make it very, very clear that if you want right out of the Bible story, go to the Bible. We're going to take some artistic liberty with what you see here. So understand, we don't get much here. They've got to fill in some blanks. They've got to fill in some gaps. But when you see Jesus with his followers at this wedding celebration what you see is Jesus laughing smiling trying to teach Andrew how to dance which that just might be biblical my middle name's Andrew and most Andrews I'm sorry we can't dance okay all right so you've got all of this fun stuff going on and you see this is the first miracle that John chooses to include and what do we see here God's kingdom his kingdom who has come. It's a place, it is a people who have hope, who have peace, but you know what else they have? Joy. Oh yeah. God's kingdom is a place of real and abiding joy. So that's the sweet side. You ready for the salty? All right, let's see what happens next. Up to this point, as I've already told you, Jesus has kind of kept himself out of the main public eye. He's up in Galilee. It's off to the north. It's kind of in the backwaters of of the Holy Lands at that time. Um, I'm sure that in Jerusalem, they were beginning to hear rumblings of this rabbi that was doing some pretty amazing things and, and had begun to kind of gather followers around them. But, but they didn't know much about him. The first Passover of Jesus, of his ministry, would change all of that. Because he goes to Jerusalem. Why don't you turn to verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Got a question for you. Just rhetorical, you don't have to answer it. How do you get the attention of a crook? I mean, a crook. I'm talking about somebody who cheats, who cheats someone else financially. Not necessarily a thief, but there's not a big difference. I mean, a crook. How do you get, how do you get their attention? You might, well, you punch him, slap him. That's how you get there. Slap him in the face. That's how you get their attention. Well, that might work a little bit. You know how you really get their attention? You punch him somewhere else in the backside, but not because it's their backside, because their wallet's back there. That's how you get the attention of a crook. You hit him in the the wallet. So let's take a look at this. Jesus gets to Jerusalem and he sees something at the temple that infuriates him. You read about it in verse 14. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. In one verse, we get an entire scene that is much bigger than that verse. It had a name. The reigning high priest at the time in Jerusalem was a guy by the name of Annas. Annas, that was his name. And what was going on at the temple was called the Bazaar of Annas. Let me tell you something. What was really taking place there would probably cause the people to call him by a different name. And all you had to do is change the pronunciation just a little bit. And I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there, okay? I don't even know if it works in the Greek. This is the scene. 
keep in mind, you have a number of people who do not do this journey to Jerusalem every year. They can't afford to. For some, this is kind of a once in a lifetime event that you save an extended period of time for. And when you arrive to Jerusalem in this festive scene and everything for to celebrate the Passover as a Jew, you might have traveled hundreds of miles just to get there for the one time in your life and you go to the temple and this is the scene that greets you. You come with an animal to sacrifice. That's part of the Passover. So let's say that you bring a goat with you to sacrifice there at the temple. This is what happens. You go into the temple at the Bazaar of Annas and you immediately are directed to not the altar to go sacrifice the animal, but you're, you're directed to the inspection tent. And at the inspection tent, you have some Sadducees and some Pharisees there whose job is to find something wrong with your animal. Oh, got a mark right there. Sorry. Not kosher. Can't use that one. All right? But have we got a deal for you? I know we know you brought that, 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 that animal a long way, so here's our deal. We will pay you for that, and then you don't even have to worry about it. We will take it to the market for you, and then we'll send you over here to buy an animal from us. Okay? So they pay them cut rate, well below wholesale here. All right? What do you do? I mean, do you, you just say, okay, all right, all right, whatever. So then you go over to purchase an inspected, wholly clean animal, all right? And you pay four to five times the amount that you were just given for the animal that you had to give up. Now here's what the priests are doing in the background. They're taking the animals from the inspection tent and going out the back door and coming in over here, and guess where they're putting them? In the holding pens of the clean animals. So you got this taking place. Now on top of that, you got the money changers. You just traveled several hundred miles. Sorry, you don't have temple coiners. You can't, you can't use that. So you need to go over there to the money changers, and they will exchange money because we can't take that money. And you pay a fee to do that. And then while you're here, since you don't get to do this real often, the temple tax. You need to take care of that as well. It's a way to worship God. You need to give this temple tax, all right? But we can't take that money. So why don't you take that money also over to the money changers, and they, will, they would be more than happy to help you out and give you a hand for a small fee. Small fee. Can you imagine what's building inside of these people? Surely nobody here has ever, I'm looking at this group, I love you people, nobody here has ever gotten mad at a Walmart service desk, huh Mike? (laughs) We both worked at Walmart, we've had many stories, all right? Nobody here has ever gotten red-faced at a customer service desk, I know it. When they look you in the eye and say, my computer's telling me that you're a thief, all right? Now they won't tell you that. But it's what they mean. You understand what I'm saying? All right. I worked behind a Walmart service desk for years. It was actually only about 11 months, but it felt like years. Okay. It's not easy for them either. Right. But you get people mad. They're pounding the desk. They're red in the face. And you get that person mad. They're pounding. Imagine that. That is exactly what's going on to the temple. All for the worship of Yahweh. And Jesus sees it. And he is furious. Let's take a look at it. 
Doesn't say anything. He just observes. And he made a scourge. He made a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. You notice it doesn't say he drove the oxen and the sheep out of the temple, right? It says he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the, and the oxen. Jesus is driving people out of the temple. The money changers, the crooks. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The words of King David many years before that they applied directly to the Messiah, Jesus. Now understand something. Jesus doing this, he is angry. Do not misunderstand. He is righteously angry. And what he did here would be wildly popular amongst the people. Put yourself in their shoes for a moment. You feel horribly taken advantage of. But you have this champion who stands up for you. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're not going to do anything about it. You might be thinking, how in the world do they just sit back and let this happen? I mean, for one thing, remember, Jesus is God incarnate, all right? And when Jesus gets ahead of steam and he gets that look in his eye, you get out of his way, all right? It's Jesus. But beyond that, not only this, you've got the Tower of Antonio right over here in the corner of the temple with a Roman garrison watching just ready to lop off some heads, okay? And not only that, you've got also the, the crowd who are loving what Jesus is doing right here. Yeah, it's not only these Pharisees and these Sadducees taking a hit in the wallet. They understand if they try to stand up to Jesus right here, they're gonna get beat up on top of it. So they cordially ask Jesus a question about his position, about his authority to do something like this. So look in verse 18. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus doesn't play their game. He gives them a sign that some of them understood. Some of them did not. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. And then John adds this kind of editorial note here to this in verse 22. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. There's something we need to understand here. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We sometimes misunderstand and think that Jesus, when his ministry started, celebrated four Passovers in Jerusalem. He did not, or three. He celebrated four. This was the first near the beginning. But his mind was already what was going to happen three years later. Saying, this temple, you're going to destroy it. But in three days, in three days, 
I will rebuild it. I'm not staying in the tomb. Jesus does not even yet have 12 disciples following him. He doesn't have the crowds following him yet. This is very early. This is so incredibly early. And Jesus is already showing those around him that he didn't come to just celebrate at weddings. He didn't come just to feed 20,000 people as he would a year and a half from then. He didn't just come to overturn the money tables in the temple. He didn't come to show people specifically how to live perfectly righteous before God. That was not why he came. Now those are great benefits to him coming. But the reason he came was to die. That's the reason he came. And three years before it took place, he's already there. The gospel writer John would have this to say about him a few chapters later. Jesus speaking, saying, I have come to set the captives free. And he would do that by dying for them. Here we are so early in John's gospel and we find something, guys. We find this early in his gospel, we find the only two reactions to the gospel. This is what I mean by that. Reaction number one, we see that at that wedding. I mean, it was a festive thing. Those were Jesus' people there. They were celebrating. It was beautiful. I think it was something that even a guy like me probably wanted to be a part of. Probably pretty fun. I'd love to have Jesus teach me how to dance. I'd love it. Maybe I could do it then, you know? And you see that side. That is the side of Jesus' people. Great joy. That's what the gospel brings for some. But you know what the gospel brings for others? Powerful destructive judgment. The gospel is the good news. That's what it means. I know you hear me talk about the gospel. It's the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yes, but at its very core, gospel means good news. When you're talking about the gospel of Jesus, it's not just good news. It is the greatest news of all time. But you know what else the gospel is? It is the greatest divider in human history. It'll divide a room like that. It'll divide a country like that. It'll divide the world like that. Last place we're going to look at today, and this is where we'll wrap up. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, a lot of his first letter to the Corinthian church had to do with the gospel. Matter of fact, we get our definition of the gospel in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But right here at the very beginning of him, he's talking about it. And he summarizes it very well in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 1. And then he goes on to talk about it a little bit more. We're going to stick right here with verse 18 and leave it alone. If you don't have verse 18 underlined yet in your Bible, get something and underline it. This is what it says. For the word of the cross, that is the gospel. 
For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. The gospel divides. Last week, we talked about heaven. And that was an incredible privilege to be able to to talk to you about heaven. But it was tough. For one thing, I kept you here way too long. All right? Like, I did the sermon audio for podcasts. I was like, oh my goodness. (laughs) They were late to El Pablito that day. Man. But seriously, how, how do you, how do you quickly and concisely talk about heaven? I mean, seriously, there's so much imagination used in that. Imagination that we've been given by God. And anything we can come up with pales in comparison to what it's about. But guys, what I didn't talk about a whole lot last week is there's another place. And it's not heaven. There's another eternal place. And it's not heaven. As we talked about last week, how heaven is not just a spiritual place. We're going to be floating on a cloud with angels' wings. Okay, no, no, not at all. Heaven will be a physical place. There will be a new heaven, a new earth. We will be transformed and be given something eternal to wear. We will be given an eternal body. And that is incredibly, powerfully encouraging. But you look on the other side of that coin, and it's powerfully frightening. Because you look at the words of Jesus. Yeah, Jesus talked about hell. And you see something about eternity there too. And you see something about the physical nature of those who will experience punishment. And it will not only be the occupants of heaven who will be given an eternal body. And the only difference between those who will reside in heaven for eternity and those who will reside in hell for eternity is Jesus. The eternal freedom that begins the moment you turn your life over to him. Through belief, confession, repentance. And as J.B. said earlier, a burial, dying to self in a watery grave and being raised new. That is called responding to the gospel. And it will set us free forever. So we come to our time of communion. There is something that I just want to focus on just for a second because we do live in a great nation. And I appreciate so much some of you in this room who served and sacrificed to protect that freedom. And I can't thank you enough for it. And let me tell you something. If you're someone who sacrificed to protect the freedom of this nation, you sacrificed for freedom, that puts you in pretty elite company. Jesus came to set the captives free by his sacrifice.
And those of you who have served to maintain that freedom, thank you so very much for your sacrifice. But that freedom, you probably know better than all of us because you've seen places in this world that many of us haven't seen. You know that that freedom is vulnerable and it can be taken away. And it might happen in our nation in the years to come. But brothers and sisters, we have a freedom through Christ that cannot be taken from us by any government in this world. Have you responded to the gospel? That's the only question that will matter.